Thank you. Christy, I think the young adults have flowers they want to give you for your baptism and acknowledge you. You want to just stand up where you are and Pastor Isaac will do that? She loves to be the center of attention, she said. <laughs> we are just rejoicing with you today and the whole family. I think while we were upstairs preparing for the baptistry, we said goodbye to John and Ray Peterson. Is that right? Did you say how many years you'd been here at this church? How many? You don't know. Your children were born here. Okay, we'll do this later. You don't know. You don't know, but I had a gift for you because you're going to Portland. <laughs> Good luck. Raised in Portland, good luck. We will miss you folks. Um, this is what family is all about, isn't it? Acknowledging those, these people who are special to us. Have you ever heard this phrase? Don't do it. Don't even think it. Has anyone said that to you? Don't even think it. See, a child said, yeah. That's the most familiar environment where we know that word. Don't even think it. A parent will say as they realize one sibling's about to clobber the other, right? If you stay in a relationship long enough and mix with the same people over the years, you, you start to know what they're thinking. After we got married, it was clear that Kirby and I could, un we knew what was happening inside the other one's mind. Some of you are like that, you're married. Don't even think it. Because that means you might do what you're thinking. And what you're thinking is probably not good. Don't even think it. Don't you dare. We are to the end of the Ten Commandments today. And we have a don't even think it commandment. In commandment number 10. And we'll read it from Deuteronomy this morning. Ten words to the Israelites on how they were to live life back in response to God. From Deuteronomy chapter 5. We'll read this morning. Deuteronomy, the version in Deuteronomy on this commandment is different than in Exodus, more different than any of the other Ten Commandments. They're just little differences. Now remember our prologue, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, commandment number ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't even think it. God could have just said, don't covet. But then God gets specific. Don't even think about any of these possessions, the land, the spouse, the employees, all the possessions in the driveway, whatever you're seeing, don't even think it. That's what the command says. God knows us well, yeah? Don't covet that's not enough. God, very specific. It's like a, a parent grounding a teenager who says, don't watch TV. And you're standing in the family room having this conversation and you gesture at the television. That wise parent knows that then you need to move to the bedroom and say, and don't watch this TV. And then you need to move to the computer and say, don't watch this TV. Right? So here's God pointing out everything in very de great detail. Don't even think about these things right here, specifically these things. And, and we find now a commandment that's very different than the four that have preceded. The four that have preceded, if you know your Ten Commandments, if you've been here, 
By the way, I was intrigued when in an interview in the press the last couple of months, you know we began this sermon series in May thinking that the National Ten Commandments Day would be a conversation that, that would sort of sweep into different communities and pockets, and so we thought we would sort of catch this wave, and that doesn't seem like it's really happened. I was interested in an interview. One of the co-founders of this piece of legislation suggesting we have a national day for the Ten Commandments, when he was interviewed in the press last month, they asked him, and can you tell us what the Ten Commandments are? And he said, all of them? <laughs> well, give it a try. The reporter said, yeah. Thou shalt not kill. He could do three. For a person so interested that the government pass a national day, well, if we know what the Ten Commandments are, the ones preceding today, four of them have been very similar. They're only two words in Hebrew. The structure is identical. They're short and specific. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Brief. And now today, could have said, do not covet, but instead we get this, this expanded version, do not have your eye, don't even think it concerning any of these things. It's interesting, and, and I think rightly placed at the very end of the Ten Commandments as a summary, do not covet. This one is related to all the preceding nine. This one focused on internal motives out of all the commandments. This is the first one focusing on things internal that you can't see. And, and people have rightly asked, how would God judge that? An ancient Israelite court would not be able to judge things internal. How would God judge? Don't even think it. It's a very different commandment. The, the idea, do not covet, originates. The, the, the meaning of that, to begin with, is setting your eyes on things that are desirable. And it moves from setting your eyes on things that are desirable to wanting those desirable things, and from that to dispossessing other people of having those desirable things, taking what belongs to someone else. So, so the, the idea of coveting sort of expands as time goes on, and by the time we get to the Middle Ages, do not covet becomes one of the deadly sins listed in the Bible. Now, now I think the Apostle Paul is very honest and candid. I can relate to him in Romans chapter 7. He it takes a while for him to spit it out, but he eventually does. Beginning in verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. Verse 8, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Paul says, I was doing fine until you told me do not covet, but now that's all I want to do. You tell me what I can't have, and what's my response normally? It's exactly what I want, isn't it? The more you restrict it, the more I want it. Tell me what's bad for me. I want that. Do not touch the tree in the middle of the garden. What's the only tree that tempted them? Tell me I shouldn't eat chocolate. I want more. Tell me I shouldn't watch so much ESPN. I turn on more. That's human nature to fight against what you tell me I shouldn't have. At, at Christmas time, our mom used to tell us, stay out of our bedroom because that's where we hide all the presents. <laughs> I have it on good authority from my brother that behind a stack of shoe boxes all the way to the back of the closet underneath a quilt for probably 20 years. 
that's where the presents are. Not that I would know, but don't go in the bedroom during Christmas time. You tell me not to go, that's exactly where I want to go. It is interesting if we open our Bible and look for an example of coveting, just coveting, just the internal motives, just the inner workings of this commandment, what would we find? There are many people who say you won't find one. You won't find an example in your Bible of only coveting. Now, I don't know if I can agree with that totally, but I believe it would be difficult. We find plenty of examples, however, that show us how coveting is related to the previous nine commandments. Here's a wonderful example, 1 Kings chapter 21. If you want to go to that place in your Bible, I'll read from the Message Bible. We'll abbreviate a little bit here. We won't read it all, but we have King Ahab and his queen wife, Jezebel. And uh, he, he has a neighbor, and he's thinking it. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 1. One day Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard so I can use it as a kitchen garden. It's right next to my house. It's so convenient. In exchange, I'll give you a far better vineyard, or, or, vineyard, or if you prefer... I'll pay for it with money. But Naboth told Ahab, Not on your life, so help me God. I'd never sell the family farm to you, which means this is inherited land, belongs in the family. There's no reason Naboth should have to give it up. Ahab went home in a black mood, the Message Bible says, sulking. Ahab went home in a black mood, sulking over Naboth, the Jezreelites' words, I'll never turn over my family inheritance to you. Ahab went to bed, he stuffed his face in his pillow, and he refused to eat, the text says. He, he's pouting, isn't he? He's acting out. So his wife, Queen Jezebel, comes to him, and she's not at all impressed with this vision of a king. <laughs> Strong woman that she is. She looks at him and says, what's wrong with you? I'll just summarize the remainder of the verses. What is wrong with you? Well, he pouts, I can't have the vineyard that I want, and it's right next to our property. It would make such a beautiful garden. And she tells him, get up. Start acting like a king. Go eat something. I'll get your vineyard. She creates a plot. She hatches this plan that she'll find two witnesses, and she'll get these two witnesses to, to say that Naboth is a liar, that he's blasphemed God, that he's blasphemed the king. She takes Ahab's letterhead, his seal, stationary. She sends a letter to the civic leaders, and sure enough, they call a court. They convene in the middle of the city plaza. Naboth and his family are there. The two servants stand up and say, yes, this man did that. And as you know, if you were here when we discussed thou shalt not kill, these two witnesses are very important. They have to have seen the crime to testify. They testify, and Naboth and his whole family are taken outside. You can pick up the last part of this story in verse 15. When Jezebel got word that Naboth had been stoned to death, she told Ahab, Go for it, Ahab. Take the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, for your own. The vineyard he refused to sell you. Naboth, well, he's no more. Naboth is dead. The minute Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he set out for the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, and he claimed it for his own. Now, how many commandments have been broken? Mm -mm -mm, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. Don't even think it, Yahweh tells the Israelites, because when you think it left unchecked in the human mind, chances are 
What comes out of you will not honor God. Chances are what comes out of you will violate other commandments. So don't even think it. And we see now how all nine commandments are tied to the tenth and the final. So don't, don't even think it. Desire gone wrong. That's what we call coveting. Desire gone wrong. Desire, which becomes a motivating power inside of us. Greed. Greed for possessions and greed for position and greed for people. We have no right to. Desire gone wrong. So we're aware of this, and we make sure when our children are little that we read to them the Bernstein Bears Got the Gimmies. Some of you have seen this title. It's so old. When Grandma and Grandpa come to visit, all the little grand cubs can say is, what, what did you bring us? The Bernstein Cubs have the gimmies. We read the book, we put it back on the shelf, and we forget sometimes that adults get the gimmies too, don't we? Mark Buchanan calls this trapped in the cult of the next thing. When we're grasping for more, when we grasp for more, what tends to happen is that more precipitates more, doesn't it? The more I have, the more I want, and so I just set a standard a, a, a little bit higher. I remember when we came as students 20 years ago to Loma Linda, you know, poor students, and they would take us to these beautiful homes, people that worked for the university, feed us a meal, and you just sit there salivating, not over the food, but over the home. Well, maybe one day I'll own a home. Well, one day, maybe a home with another bedroom. Well, maybe a home with a bedroom and, another, and a pool. Well, one day I won't drive my Dodge Colt. <laughs> I, I can have a real car. Like, people drive Hondas. One, one day I can have a Honda. I remember thinking that one day, driving around Loma Linda, I was working at the medical center. Real people drive Hondas. <laughs> and now I drive a Toyota but I drive on the freeway coveting what you all know, a BMW Z4. And I have seen so many of them this week. More begets more. It's a, it, I just set my standard higher. That's what happens. So one question I have when I read this commandment is, is does that tell me then that desire, this instinctual internal desire that we all seem to have, is that negative? My instinct and my inclination to have, which is part of being human, is that by nature negative? Is it bad for me to want and to have, or can there be dignity in having? Can there be dignity in desire? I know you're hot and I know it's late, but I really want to preach. <laughs> Can I preach? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Years ago, when we were poor, I worked for a national weight loss company. I can't if I sing the jingle, you'll know the company. You'll even be able to tell me the 1-800 number. We're in the city of Houston, lots of these stores in the city of Houston. I had this very important job to sit by the red phone. It's the lead phone. It's, it's like in Batman and Robin when the commissioner's phone rings in the office there. So I sit by this hotline. It's a lead line. When it rings, that means somebody has seen an advertisement somewhere in the greater Houston area, 4 million people, and they're calling in. And they train you how to do this. And it goes against my nature, but I learned it well. The phone would ring, 
and you take a breath and you say, thank you for calling. How can I help you? person on the line said, I'd like to lose 40 pounds. How, how much is it going to cost me? Pretend you don't hear that. Well, what did you say your name was? My name is Mary. I'd like to lose 40 pounds. How much is it going to cost me? Well, Mary, how are you today, Mary? Thank you for calling. Now, Mary, let me ask you a question. For how long have you been struggling with this 40 pounds? Mary says, a very long time. How much is it going to cost me? Mary, when you say a very long time, you know, your whole adult life, have you had this 40 pounds? And Mary, what are some of the things that you're not able to do because you have this 40 pounds? Well, I can't find the clothes I want. I, you know, how much is it going to cost me? Mary, Mary, sit back in your chair, Mary. Close your eyes, Mary. Imagine that you're somewhere far away, that you've lost your 40 pounds, that you look the way you want to look. Mary, where are you, Mary? Oh, I'm on a cruise. Oh, that's good, Mary. Good choice. Where are you cruising? I'm in Mexico. Oh, who's with you? My boyfriend. Mary, what are you wearing there on the cruise ship? I'm wearing a swimming suit. What color is it, Mary? It's yellow. It's yellow polka dot. And I look so good in it. Mary, there you are on the cruise ship in your yellow polka dot swimming suit, and you look so good, Mary. What's your boyfriend's name again, she says? I don't have a boyfriend, <laughs> but I'm going to have one when I lose this 40 pounds. Mary comes in. Mary buys the program. Mary spends thousands of dollars. She reaches her ideal weight. Mary's happy. Is there any dignity in desire, wanting to look okay, wanting to be healthy, wanting to be able to be in a relationship, wanting to, wanting to enjoy other humans and have in this life what we think God designed for us to have. Is there any dignity in desire is the question? We must answer yes because desire comes from God. Desire is put in your heart from the Creator it's the creator who had the idea of beauty, isn't it? And wholeness and good, beautiful sunsets, good food, gorgeous artwork, laughter and conversations. Where did that come from? The creator. And when the creator put us on the earth, the creator left us with the same desire to continue those creative acts. So our instinct for, for that is not negative. In fact, whatever God's given you, whatever gifts these are, whatever the potential is, I think we have a God-given mandate to live up to it, to move more towards it. So I don't think we can say desire, desire is a bad thing, is negative. I think there can be dignity and spiritual dignity in desire. Where maybe we go wrong is when Desire, God-given desire and potential and giftedness meets this world. And we feel the need not just to be what God created us to be, but to be a little more. And so Mary not only wants one boyfriend or husband, but she wants them all on the ship. She wants to look better than anyone else. She, there's a, a competitive edge, and she wants to be just above what it is. The competitive edge tells us we'd like our students at Mesa Grande to score score well on their SATs and ACTs. In fact, it'd be okay if they were number one, wouldn't it, in the conference or in the union. We'd like our students at the university to score well on their boards. We can say they're number one for all the schools in the states. 
We'd like to be the best at whatever treatment we provide here at our institution. The competitive edge means we're in a real world where people compete, and, and we'd like to just be ahead. Interesting, Adventist Health Systems, a couple years ago when they expanded the Simi Valley Hospital plant, I sat in a board meeting where they revealed a consumer survey stating that consumers prefer tall buildings. When they stand on the sidewalk and decide which building should serve them, they want a tall building. More confidence. It, 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 it presents a reputation of more confidence and more capable. So Simi Valley then decided rather to ex then expand their plant out and sprawl it out on one level to go up. Not bad. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying being aware of the world we live in, the competitive edge, because we are mission-minded people, are we not? That has not changed. Mission-minded folks like us live on purpose. Mission-minded folks live in a covenanted community where we understand our obligation is to God, not to the competitive edge and not to the world. Is that right? So we must keep those things in order there. When I wake up in the morning, I'm not living to be number one. I'm living for God today. When I put my feet on the ground, all I have to say is, God, it's about you today. It isn't about self. It isn't about being number one. It isn't about being the best, about edging others out. This is where desire goes wrong. So if we're not being asked to give up our instinctual desire, what might we be asked to do by this commandment number 10? Maybe we're being asked to recognize that the world is not a play thing. It's not just for our own fun and games. Now I know Pastor Dan asked you a few weeks ago if you were watching the World Cup and there was so much giggling in the sanctuary, like nobody knew what the World Cup was. Did anybody watch the World Cup final on Sunday? So we have a lot of visitors today. <laughs> I, it was just a riveting game we watched with my daughters. Somebody tell me, this is a microcosm, by the way, of what we're talking about. 32 teams for a month are all changing the same. They're all chasing the same metaphorical ball around the field, aren't they? Because only one of them can stand on the platform at the end and say, they are the 2006 World Cup champion. Only one team gets to do that. And when you come out of retirement to join your country's team and your team qualifies and you find yourself all the way to that final game and you find that you've played the entire regulation period and you're in overtime and then you're in another period of overtime and the score is tied and then you find that this could go to a penalty kickout match which nobody wants to win the World Cup that way. What a glorious winning. And you find yourself right there and somebody says something to you on the team, op opposing team, and you're walking away, and you're thinking it, and you have to turn around and come back and act on what you were thinking. And you walk away from the field, ejected. You don't see your team win. You don't see the trophies being given. You don't see the second place being honored. This is how you end your career. Chasing after things. Don't even think it, the commandment says. It's a wonderful summary in 2 Kings chapter 17 when the Israelites have failed again at something in their rebellion. The verse summarizes it this way, saying, They were chasing after false idols. 
Hebrew, it says they're chasing after the nothing, and they become nothing. Chasing around things. Maybe I have to realize the commandment tells me the world is not my plaything. I don't get everything I want. I don't order these things. I don't tell people and orchestrate how everything should turn out because I'm not in charge. Maybe this is one thing the commandment would like me to acknowledge. Maybe the commandment is saying to you, you're not in control. God is in control. Remember, God sits on the throne. Remember, it is God, as we read from Psalms earlier this morning, creating me a clean heart that I might serve you. It's you, God. And if you find yourself chasing around after nothing in the world and forgetting that you don't organize and orchestrate everything, maybe a fresh reading of the Psalms, Psalm 51, will help us because these rules don't change people. God changes people, right? So if you want to be changed into a Tenth Commandment person, pray that Psalm. Maybe the commandment also, if I'm not God and God is God, maybe there's wisdom in the Israelites and in the Jews getting up every morning and repeating the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. I will love that God today. I will serve that God today with everything I have, reminding me of who's in charge in this world. Maybe the commandment finally is telling me that I am not special because of what I have. Someone has said, anyone who can say that has never had much stuff. What makes me special is not my stuff. It is not my belongings. It was very clear to me this week watching pictures coming out of Beirut, Lebanon, as this attack between Israel and Lebanon is unfolding. Watching the airport shattered, watching the roads shattered, watching civilians die, and finally watching this picture of a a family walking away from everything they have. They have two little bags. Does stuff matter? Those bombs could be here just as easy as they can be anywhere else in our world. We believe that, don't we? And you'll look at that picture and you get real clear why the Bible says, don't set your sights on things of this earth. Things of this earth will what? Pass away, the text says. You're not defined by the things of these earth. How are you defined? You're defined by the God who loves you. You're defined by this God of Israel who said, I called you out. You are my child. I chose you. Therefore, you are special. Yes? If, if you know John Peterson well at all, you know Jesus loves me, this I know is his theology. That's how you're special. That's how I'm special. Maybe the commandment is just a very overt reminder, a red flag. Don't even think it. Don't even think that stuff gives you status anywhere. You're special because you belong to God. I must share good news with you as we close this morning, and Bernice Davidson gives me permission to speak about her. Pastor Larry and Bernice Davidson have been in our congregation 12 years. They know how long they've been here. (laughs) So, So Bernice has been worried about a mass on her ovary for a few weeks because she has a history of breast cancer more nervous. 
quite convinced in her mind that she was up against something uh, destructive in her body, had given this problem to God, and went in for surgery this week. Bernice, as you know, is not only very active and vibrant, but she's a clever one. She decided when she came out of surgery and went to recovery, she would just feel her abdomen. If the bandage was small, that's good news. If the bandage was large, that meant bad news. They had to do a more extensive surgery. Isn't that clever? She doesn't have to wait for anybody to come and talk to her and tell her what they found. She just got her little hands and she can do it. So I asked her in the hospital yesterday, that's what you did? Is that when you knew it was good news? She said, well, they took me to the recovery room and my goodness, there are four blankets on top of me. I couldn't find my abdomen. (laughs) But soon the news came. Good news. Small bandage. It's not cancer. Not good news? Bob Knudsen told me if we danced in church, this would be when we would do it. This would be an appropriate use of praise dancing. It's good news. And you find yourself in situations like Bernice and Larry, and you say, well, am I greedy to want to live? Is it wrong to ask God, spare my life, I just want to live? Is that, is that greedy? Should I feel bad that I, I know I want to live? The answer is no, because God is greedy for life too, amen? God wants us to live. When we live to our full potential, that's when the character of God is known in this world. That's when this world knows God is good, and God is patient, and God is forgiveness, and God is beauty. God is greedy for life, too. That is what the Ten Commandments have been about, friends. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of that terrible land. I have my eyes set on something so good. Do we have a deal? Those are the ten words. For them, for us. Dismiss us now, great, great God who sits on the throne. Dismiss us with your peace and your assurance. Dismiss us with the self-esteem and confidence that comes from you because you chose us because you placed us in this world to live. We love you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.